2: It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gather around the table this Thursday. We've got Patrick Klupik. Uh I'm ready to clap at 43. All right. That was uh, me. That I was ready. I got it was it. early. Uh, okay. I think I meant age 43, uh, so I was like <laughs> settling in. I, got, you know, I got a I got a few beverages here. Uh, <laughs> I can wait. I can wait you out. Uh, and we're also I joined thought- by Austin Walker.
0: I thought Patrick meant he was ready to clap for the 43rd president of these United States, George W. Bush. And I was like, wow, Patrick, that's – you picked the day, I guess. Wrong, Bush. but
2: uh... so, so extraordinary to become the second the, – the, the son of a president, becoming president yourself. It's, it's, yeah, um, how yeah. remarkable do you have to be? An American uh, dream,
0: honestly, really. Yeah. You know, speaks to the, our, 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 uh, our values, our, our belief in family uh wealth passing from father to son um, access to power being limited to only those who already have it cheers happy thursday happy volunteer day <laughs> happy volunteer day uh who, who how do we get this back on track
2: well uh speaking of upper crust asshole shitbags <laughs> uh i Jesus have been i've spe- spending the weekend no, I'm, t- I'm mostly talking about W, mostly talking about W, <laughs> who I think we can basically agree is a shithead fail son who the country spent years like gaslighting itself yeah, into believing, yeah. had some sort of marginal competence. Uh, anyway, I have been spending the uh, weekend watching Ordeal by Innocence. Uh, which is an Agatha Christie adaptation, and takes all those classic tropes of uh, Chris, a lot of Christie mysteries, but a lot of like British detective fiction, where you have the the country house full of like rich dirtbags all gathered together, and at least one of them gets murdered, and everyone is so terrible or has such a good motivation or both that they could all be suspects, mm-hmm. and this is one of my favorite things. I live for this kind of story uh, for this kind of TV show this is what I grew up on in a lot of ways David Suchet as Hercule Poirot uh, was my guy but one of the raps on Christy is that a lot of her stories are really cerebral abstract like logic puzzles almost like the characters themselves don't like motivation. Isn't something that Christie pays a ton of attention to. It's, it's really very interesting. There's not a lot of uh, characterization that Christie and her imitators tended to pay attention to. And that I think is what a lot of people increasingly gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. So what I think is cool about uh, this adaptation of ordeal by innocence, uh, which was written by Sarah Phelps and directed by Sandra Goldbacher is that fundamentally they're trying to adapt the story, but also revise it in line with kind of our expectations for what good storytelling and particularly like what prestige t v storytelling looks like in in twenty eighteen uh and so that's kind of what I spent my last uh my last weekend uh enjoying, and I just decided to give it a shot because it's been a while since I've seen anything in this vein. And I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it, in spite of it being, in some ways, almost paint by numbers. <laughs> the
1: uh, it was one of my favorite things about the the. I only watched the first episode. One thing we should mention: it's only three episodes, so it's yeah, like you can
0: blow through, is, I blew through and, it all and they're, they're all last night.
1: Yeah, like it's it's an easy dive in in an era where like oh here's another good show that I don't have twelve hours for. Like this one is actually one you could burn through in an evening. Um, Like I'm not familiar at all with Agatha Christie um, and murder mystery is not necessarily like something I spend a lot of time in as sort of like a subgenre, but like as a horror fan, like I am like intimately familiar with like. Paint by Numbers and then appro- appreciating Paint by Numbers and that genre work that knows it's in Paint by Numbers and doesn't necessarily subvert it. It's just interested in doing it really well and mm-hmm. and having fun with the people who kind of know what they're in for, but not ex- at the expense of people who don't know what they're in for, right? Like, right. it ends up working on, on multiple levels. And the, one of the, the, the early sort of, like, signs that I really enjoyed was the, the music. The music is a really fun character, especially in the first episode, in which, like, within the first couple of minutes, you get the, like, fucking foreboding, like, Mm da-na-na-na-na, like, like, someone is bad here, but it's not really indicating who. (laughs) And at first you're like, oh, like, they're hinting that, like, this person's bad. And then it's just every character, as they get, like, their moment, gets the evil little... It's just this one little thematic... Uh, a bit that's like thirty, forty-five seconds long, and it plays for everyone. And every time oh, it happens, yeah. just like the biggest smile on my face is you realize, like, oh, like they all could have gotten together and murdered this woman together. For all we know, like, which yep. they're all bad. Which and is supposed- the
2: solution to Christie's most famous mystery. Yes. By the no way, way. <laughs> she yes. is not above yes. the. Here's why you couldn't figure this one out. <laughs> yeah. They I'm all idiot. did it. They're
0: all murderers, <laughs> jerk. And they and they're probably right to have done it. Also, Uh, Christie's good. I you know I grew up reading a lot of Agatha Christie um, and then fell off completely. My like middle school era through junior high was getting into detective fiction. Um, and then somewhere in high school, I moved from Christie to American kind of hardboiled detectives, mm-hmm. and fell off. And then came back to hardboiled uh, detective fiction in college by way of an incredible teacher. She was like, she was like one of the best experts on F. Scott Fitzgerald, and then also loved writing and teaching about hardboiled hardboiled detective fiction and film noir. She was like one of my favorite professors ever. Um, and somewhere along the way, I just forgot how much I love a good ass mystery. Um, Because Hardware Detective Fiction is less about the mystery and more about the characters and more about the corruption and more about the the feeling of being buried under something so much bigger than you that like somewhere along the way, sure, you solve a mystery. But really what you solved was figuring out how terrible people are, you know, Um, and that has clearly had an effect on me. But going back to Christie, I've gone back a couple of times in the last few years. Um, it has been really fun. And and Ordeal by Innocence is interesting because from what I remember and what I've read of the original story, this takes a lot of diversions from it. Um, I was reading that the original book was thought of as being kind of cynical for Christie, like, like in terms of the notion of solving the mystery, having a sense of... Like hopefulness and a sense of like ah uh, yes the 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 ingenious detective is here and there is something beautiful in the in the act of detection even as the crime itself is grisly um, and I feel like ordeal by innocence the TV series is really grappling with that like this is a show that like Patrick says like has a lot has has moments where it's like man this whole family fucking sucks like everyone here is the worst there's no one for me to to, to like root for but bit by bit the thing that's interesting is all of the characters unpeel like an onion, and what you find underneath is that some of them are people you really want to squash, and some of them are people you start rooting for, even if they still have their own flaws, and, and I really enjoyed that, that part of the show for sure.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that... A difficult trick with a show like this is I think a lot of TV shows, a lot of films, it is important, and generally it's good policy, To give the audience somebody they want to root for. Somebody worth cheering for. What is at first the most interesting thing about Ordeal by Innocence is the degree to which it discards that role. And is more than happy giving you a slate of characters who by the end of that first episode, not only did I believe all of them were capable of murder, I was also starting to root for them to start taking each other out right like <laughs> I really wanted like the end of that first episode I was like all right let's seal this manor house up give everyone a gun yeah. or a knife or something and just see what happens just, just set just the, little... send this series in the purge and like if it's not right in
0: <laughs> I mean the thing is like said it even within Christie's own work the the like and then there were none style of all right you start with a group of 10 people and bit by bit by bit there are two left and it's like well uh oh one of them is probably a killer. Um and and I expected that. I expected this to become that show. And instead it becomes a show that is about uh a certain sort of mid-century trauma that is about uh kind of everything ranging from sexual misconduct and and sexual and rape to like so straight up know that that's one of those topics that's going to be dealt with in this show. Um though not depicted in a in a particularly in, in not depicted at all, just kind of alluded to. Um, To, uh, uh, you know, trauma around living through the Cold War and living through the the rise of of nuclear warfare, Um, but all still completely and always grounded in someone got killed, who did it, and also this house still feels dangerous. Am I about to get killed? Um, And that
2: really gives it a very interesting and weird energy um, that, that I think it pays off in the end. I think one of the inter- the other things that's worth noting here is, uh, so to give you a little background on what the story even is, uh, so when things sort of kick off, we, we begin sort of with the death of the family matriarch, uh, who is uh, a woman named Rach- Rachel Ar- Argill and played by Anna Chancellor, who's a great character actress. She was one of the stars of uh, The Hour, which was another great British mystery series. Uh, but... She's sort of portrayed as this almost like saintly figure, uh, but for some reason, all her children kind of seem to resent and even hate her a year after her death and seem uh, very, very conflicted about their feelings about her and their upbringing. The other notable thing is they're pretty much all adoptees. Uh, The the implications to be at least a number of them are uh, perhaps like war orphans. Uh, that, that she took in uh during during the blitz or in the wake of the blitz uh but she so she's got this like large family of of adopted children, all of whom were clearly like cared for and given a lot of opportunities as they grew up, but all of whom seem to carry a great deal of psychological scarring uh, from their time in that family and the greatest scar of all is that in the opening minutes of the first episode uh the Trouble—the troublemaker of the family, Jack Argyle, uh, or Argyle—I think it's Argyle. I think they say Argyle, right? I can't—I can't quite. I'm pretty remember. sure. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll say Argyle. So Jack Argyle, who's sort of the bad boy troublemaker, uh, the non-compliant uh, kid, the, the rebel, is the one who's sort of blamed for bludgeoning his mother to death and then trying to take off through the woods, and he is arrested for the crime and the last we see of him he is being sort of led away uh into police detention and then we flash forward a year to the widowed husband who's played by uh bill nighy uh who i think av club describes him as playing the bill nighy role uh which is very true like you'll know him when you see him he's a british character actor he's doing one of his sort of very standard performances, but he is marrying the sort of bombshell uh, secretary and all the family is gathering for his second marriage. And into the middle of this uh, comes this strange, slightly nervous uh, young man who arrives and says he is Jack's alibi that a year ago or more, they arrested the wrong guy and the story that son told that was transparently bullshit to excuse himself from murdering his mom was in fact true. And everyone, and at that point, all hell breaks loose. Uh, because at that point, everything that everyone has assumed about that murder is sort of thrown overboard, and it's everyone sort of coming to terms with the fact that a, they may have not fig- ever figured out who actually killed Rachel, but second, if Jack didn't kill Rachel, someone else did, and one, and this this realization I think is most fun to see uh, hit. A character that really stood out in this show for me, Matthew Goode as uh, Philip, mm-hmm. um, who is just one of the biggest assholes. <laughs> that dude uh, sucks. <laughs> he is so bad. <laughs> it's, uh, so he is this... And at first you're going to think he is uh, a paraplegic ex-RAF pilot, and you're going to be thinking like embittered war hero. Mm, possibly not <laughs> but what we do know about him is that he is kind of a domineering uh, emotionally manipulative and abusive asshole and man the performance is just cranked up so high to 11 and he spends the entire first episode kind of provoking and pissing everybody off because he thinks fundamentally they're all a bunch of wimps seeing it seeing it dawn on him that there's a murderer. Among Mm -hmm. this group of people that he's been fucking with for, like, a year and a half. The, 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 like, without, like, explaining
1: the specific revelations, but, like, the restaurant scene is, like, one of my favorite scenes I have seen in a thing all year. Like, the whole arc of the little things he does that, like, is aware of how people perceive him, aware of how he can use that to manipulate others. Like, he doesn't, like, see his circumstance as a... I'm sure he's not happy with him circumstance, but, like... He realizes the advantage of a circumstance. And the way he uses that to manipulate the people around him is just, oh, like there's like hierarchy like you have all these different types of, of characters you're introduced to that you end up finding to be fucking revolting for all sorts of reasons. And then like his turn at the end is like, well, that's not gonna be the that's the guy? Like that's <laughs> the one? Like, yeah. and, well, it's, like it, and it's and it's fun too because it's like it, as the viewer, it's like, well, generally the trope is like, oh, I'm going to feel sympathy and understand that this person in their circumstance is going to be angry for reasons that get into all sorts of different tropes of how people with, uh, uh, are, are depicted in those different ways. But, like, the show is just very smart about, like, the way it's playing with its characters. And, and, and I don't know how much of that is based in the, the novel and how much of that is the modernization that's happening here. Um, but I found it, like, delightful is is, like, what I came away from in scenes like that and others.
0: I would say it, it, one of the most interesting things for me, too, is that the all of the characters are gathered under this very specific model patriarch um, who you don't really get a full grasp of immediately. Um, I like think you see him for the first time and, and you think, like, OK, I'm going to, to begin to think about him in the way that I think of, of like, you know, uh, aristocratic British men in shows like Downton Abbey or something. You think, like, OK he's a man of means who who is in control of this family and blah 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 but then bit by bit that starts to peel away and you realize okay he's he's a writer is a thing that that you learn and not necessarily a particularly successful one he's an, he's a quote amateur egyptologist which you should look into <laughs> egyptology at some point if you haven't which is like the the uh, Egyptology is a fancy word that stood in for for like really shitty colonial tomb raiding and uh like the 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 theft of cultural goods and history uh in in this period of time and and for like the two hundred years previous.
2: Um, there he is a such fucking a... go ahead, Rob. Uh, just a bit about Egyptology. There's this point where the guy who shows up, who's oh, who is so the good. alibi, uh, he sort of notes he sort of notes all the uh, Egyptian artifacts and. And some shit that looks like maybe tchotchkes you just bought oh, from 100%, the store. Oh, Just
0: like looks just some like some souvenir shit. bullshit. Yeah.
2: Yeah. This is my uh, look. It's it's a, a set bottle opener. Uh, <laughs> like that's the kind of shit. That, he is that, a
0: boat that just says Anubis on the <laughs> side. So good. Uh, it's like, a rowboat. Like, it's made, a like, rowboat, not a yacht, not like a huge, like, beautiful fishing ship.
2: So the guys, like, oh, you're an Egyptologist, and Bill he's like, oh, you know, strictly amateur. And the guy who is a accredited scientist just sort of smiles and is like, well, aren't they all amateurs? And immediately, like, just the temperature in the room just, like, drops, like, yeah. 10 degrees.
0: Okay, well, anyway, I'm here to tell you about how your son is innocent, actually. Um, the, the thing that I want to go with that, though, is, like, underneath that patriarch are... All of these people who fall into all of these different marginalized categories uh, either through their 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 relationship with their mental health there uh, there is one adoptee who is uh, black um, and and a woman uh, there is like you said the the uh, husband of one of one of the adoptees into this family is was uh, injured in the in the war and is nope. uh, was not injured sorry you're right not injured in the war you're right sorry was injured <laughs> after the war. Uh, and but he'll well, let the, you think he was. He will absolutely make let you think that he was. Yeah, that that he was injured in the war. I uh, was injured after the war and is, is in a, a wheelchair. Um, and this isn't necessarily a show about how it isn't really about how those identities interlink, um, or the or, or trying to determine a uh, any sort of like uh, uh, proprietarity or or any sort of uh, dominance between like oh, well this character is is. In a, in a much worse, uh, more marginalized place, and therefore that is the, the the person whose identity needs to be the most important, or something like that. It, instead, it does use these things to characterize their individual traumas over time. And so, when a character who has dealt with sexual assault is is on screen and is interacting with someone who has been uh, marked by her race, and so who takes who takes. Uh, extra, uh, you know, who who has had extra pressure put on her to be prim and proper in a specific way to move through certain spaces. You can see those aspects of those characters interacting, but but it's not. It doesn't ever just boil down to that to those those elements of their relationships or their their identities.
2: Well, and I think something that this genre can fall into very very easily is it becomes very broad class satire, mm-hmm. and I think like Gosford Park is maybe your perfect. Uh, you know, exemplar of this. Uh, and it's a very meta, uh, class satire as well. It's, it's a, it's a Robert Altman movie making a movie about this kind of British, uh, mystery, but, It works because these things like it it is basically you are literalizing things about class relations Mm -hmm. and odd the odd conventions of this uh class of sort of inherited wealth and the people who surround them and have surrounded them for generations uh in an older model of british society what this one does differently that i that i appreciate is it has that specificity you're talking about austin where these people aren't just like sock puppets who like bear their no. like their class marker and then that one other trait that, that that is then meant to inform their character what this series does across the episodes that I that ends up getting me on side with a lot of these characters these people I kind of disliked at the start I'm kind of rooting for a lot of them by the end some of them become unlikely heroes of the story I think one of the reasons it does that is it shows the violence Worked on a lot of these, a lot of these people, mm-hmm. a lot of these kids, in trying to get them to fit these very rigid uh, molds and so the social relations, and the ways that kind of required the like the grinding away or the grinding down of their individuality and their emotional mm-hmm. needs, and I think mean, that's what the story ultimately turns into is, uh, what is the what is the cost long-term and what sort of people inflict uh, this kind of psychological and emotional violence to try and reproduce sort of your perfect aristocratic son or daughter. Yeah.
0: Um, It tells a lot of that stuff in a format that I've seen used plenty of times, which is the, the use of like flashback obviously is it's not new to cinema or to television, Um, but it does it here in a pretty evocative way where it, it, has kind of three kind of markers in time. It has the, the contemporary stuff the stuff that's happening in you know in the, the action of the, the major story right now, the guy coming to the house, et cetera. It has the night of the murder whose events you see from different perspectives bit by bit over the course of the three episodes until you have a a firmer understanding of what happened that night and how the emotional states you see depicted early on are developed through context is really clever and really smart in terms of like, okay, why are they upset in this scene? Why are they like this in this scene? Oh, okay. That means that the, okay, I thought this character was pissed off about A, but really now we know that they were still reacting to B. Cool. Okay. And then it goes further back to when they were kids, basically. And that's a, a broader window of time. But it weaves between those three things so well to create an effect that is not too dissimilar from the way big important moments in our own lives sometimes work. Mm -hmm. When like you see someone who you've been rivals with for years get a new job and you're like man fuck off you were so rude to me on the night of that party. And like it's that's the way sometimes we, we mythologize our own lives, our own stories. And this show does that in a way that always felt natural even though I think that the effect, there's like a weird clock ringing, slow motion close up thing that is kind of goofy. They go um, to that
2: one a little too often. A
0: little too often. Especially in the beginning when it's just happening over and over and over again. But, well, it's
1: like, well it's, it's like, it's kind of melodrama, it right? Is, like, it like, is. Like totally. It is inherent it's fine. to like, yeah. like, the little I know about like, Christy is like, okay, like, of course it's going to have melodrama because, like, isn't that part of the this whole genre?
0: It can be. It can be. It's fine. It, it doesn't take it away from. from it doesn't. It, I didn't stop watching the show. You know. Yeah.
2: Um, but there's a shot that's repeated that's basically lifted from the start of Memento, uh, with the blood sort of coming. Yes. Or or is it insomnia? I can't remember. The well, drop. Nolan I think has used it twice actually. Yeah. Blood yeah. See- seeping out of a fabric. Uh, but uh, do want to call out really quickly? Uh, so Sandra Goldbacher Bacher directed, and this was apparently not an easy production uh one char- one major character was recast uh due to the original actor being uh accused of some assault allegations uh so they had to recast a major character and then another another major character shooting dates never lined up and so they could never actually get this major character oh uh, wow at like on the set at the same days as the other actors and so there is a character the secretary apparently um Who was like literally never really in these scenes uh, with these other characters, and they just sort of had to shoot around that and split screen her in. Wow. And yeah, usually like across six out like not six hours, but it's like three three and a half hours of mini series. Usually, like I can start to detect weirdness around production issues like that. You can just see like why you know why are we like trapped in this like two shot and we never go to wide right why do, why is that keep happening uh but goldbacher seems to do a pretty good job of disguising whatever difficulties they uh, ran into during the shoot so uh it's it's a really cool production and i think it's a very good modern adaptation of Christie. and i think i had a lot of fun with it watching it this weekend uh it was a perfect coming down sick uh, kind of uh, curl Ooh. up on the couch and and watch a lot of mysteries. Uh, so I I recommend it. it I don't want to say it does more than it promises on the tin, no, but uh, it does the damn thing. It's a good version of what it is, and I would I would actually Dude, um,
0: please finish it. The ending is incredible, Patrick. No, I'm going to. I, okay.
2: I
1: I watched the first and then liked it enough that I was like, I'll rewatch this first episode with my wife. Nice. Like I know she'll dig into it, but I wanted to like. Uh, There's a lot of similarities in this show to a previous Waypoint of ours with The Haunting of Hill House. Mm. Um, This is basically, in a lot of ways... I mean... most of the people are uh, – the kids are, are good. They're assholes in The Haunting of Hill House. But, like, it's generally a show about, like, good people trapped in, like, bad circumstances. Mm-hmm. This is, this is a pretty marginally different than that. But, like, if you enjoyed like, – part of what made The Haunting of Hill House work was that it was a supernatural story that uh, worked in conjunction with, like, a really good family character study. Mm-hmm. And, like, watching this, I, I, it felt a lot of echoes of Haunting of Hill House. If you really liked the family stuff in that – I think this doesn't have, you know, ghosts and monsters and ghouls, but I, I think you'll find something uh,
2: similarly arresting if you enjoyed that part of of Hill House. Right. Uh so that is Ordeal by Innocence, you can watch that on Amazon, it's streaming free on Prime uh and again it's just three hours it's an it's it's an evening or two of uh enjoyable watching highly recommended uh we'll be back in just a moment and then we'll continue with waypoints but first uh a quick ad
3: the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
2: So speaking of ways you can traumatize your children uh patrick oh, uh you well you,
1: rob just do it. i i erased it but like what did you originally write in here uh uh I'm, I'm, can i scroll up far enough fast enough
0: i can pull up we got this is in Google yeah here Docs. we go it's
1: segment p- two uh after the break as, as as rob put in the in the document let patrick feed jessica at school <laughs> and then link to this piece um it's actually the second piece I didn't realize this until uh, – I hadn't looked at the byline until I set sat down to reread it. Um, uh, it's a piece called uh, The Controversy Over Parents Who Eat Lunch With Children at School uh, by Taylor Lorenz. With their children. Ad-
2: crucial with their <laughs> children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yes,
1: that is a cru- crucial distinction. written by Taylor Lorenz and uh, a previous – uh, Waypoint uh, also is an article of hers uh, about sort of harassment and bullying uh, and social stigmatization of, of, on Instagram, uh, which is an Ooh. equally uh, good and interesting piece um, from some weeks back. Uh, and yeah, so like this is uh, building off of uh, an Associated Press story um, in which there was a uh, school in da, 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 in Connecticut, uh, Darien, I believe is, I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it, but in, in Connecticut, in an in upper class like you know, median income 200,000 plus, 200, plus um, per family uh, in which there was such a run on parents going to eat lunch with their kids at school. And this is not just once a month, once a quarter, once a year. This is like a, a thing where parents are coming multiple days in a row, most of the week, like, uh, you know, 10 to 15 parents coming in and wanting to eat lunch with their kids. And so Taylor's piece is sort of a broader look. Uh, the, the AP piece uh, is, which we'll put in the show notes is, is worth reading. Cause it's about this very specific s- school and what the administration did. And then Taylor's piece is sort of a broader uh, look at this trend, which I didn't realize was a trend, but apparently it has become a trend that goes kind of part and parcel with a more encouraging trend, which is that like parents are like, there are studies finding that parents are becoming much more active and involved in their children's, like academic lives in which they are showing up to like parent teacher conferences they are coming to events like they're they're getting involved in the way that uh it sounds like encouraging and positive but they're also coming and eating lunch with them and it's causing all sorts of social disruptions the piece talks less about like the way that might ostracize a child from a social dynamic and more the way that parents introduce new social dynamics like bringing pizza for their kids and their friends when everyone else is eating, you know, whatever glop is being given out in the school cafeteria. It's parents coming in and, like, intruding on... And, well, I guess intruding on social dynamics, like, trying to learn, like, who are their kids' friends with? Like, who are they having trouble with? Um, One parent who says, like, well, my kid doesn't know how to open their milk very well, so I come in and I open the milk for them. And all this just, like, tremendously strange, weird stuff that is 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 pitched under the umbrella of... Well, I just want to be more involved in my child's life, and it actually, seems like it's more like the negative side of you know what's called helicopter parenting, which is a sort of a modern phenomenon in which parents just like want to shield their children away from any anything in the world um, and have it all filtered through whatever they have decided is worthy of making it to their kids. So I like had just a vile reaction to the notion <laughs> that this article or that this trend exists at all that I had to dial back slightly because it's like Rob then needled me like later in a chat was like, well, like, well, what happens, you know, when Jessica comes home from lunch and like some shit's gone down, but she won't tell you what's up. And it's true that like, as a parent, like, I don't know how I'm going to react to things like this, but man, if this had happened to me when I was a kid, like this would, so it's fucking mortifying. Like, like at least at a certain age, right? Mm-hmm. At least middle school, starting in middle school for sure. But I I don't know. Like, I, I was just – I found myself completely revolted by this piece and, like, parents need to find a fucking line for themselves because, like, school is one of those places where, like, the mistakes you make are supposed to be something you do on your own.
0: It's a tough one. I – it is so hard for me to be, like – so I had divorced parents as a kid. Uh, and eventually both of my parents remarried, and so I, at this point in my life, have, have a, an abundance of family and connections, right? And, like, by the time I was going to college, even, like, in high school, I was surrounded by family. It was all more family than I, you know, on a Sunday night, I could go to one of any three dinners or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it would have been easy to, to, to have that. But for a while there, it was, like, me and my mom, and my, my dad lived out of state and was, like, working, and I'd see him on weekends when he'd come home to Jersey or once every few weeks, um, and even when he was around, it was like, you know, being having divorced parents means you see them once in a while. And so to some degree, I can imagine there being a version of this that would have appealed to young Austin. And he, also my mom was like a working class mom who was working two jobs and like going to night school and then had brain surgery. And then so at that point, I like – when she had brain surgery, she was like in bed a lot and recovering and fighting off seizures and a billion other things. And so, there is part of me that's like, man, if I could go back and rewrite it so that my dad showed up at school and could have lunch with me, or my stepdad would show up at school, or my mom, or you know what I mean, like, there's a version of it that I could imagine getting more quality time with my parents would have been really great.
1: This isn't that. This isn't. Though, I know right? it isn't. So, I know it isn't. I know. So it like, isn't. so I
0: want. So like, to your point,
1: like. There a bunch of stories got written about this in, in the wake of this original AP story in addition to this one from Taylor at the Atlantic um, and this one from I mean it explicitly
0: uh, isn't because my mom could never have done that because she was working two jobs and going to school cool. right,
1: right. Yeah. so yeah there's a, there's a whole like subplot of like class and privilege right. that is not explored at least in this Atlantic piece and in the AP piece but so there in, in one of the other ones at a place called the Takeout there mm-hmm. was a comment in which most people were dragging this in the way that I think is easy to drag um uh, it, but he, uh, this person wrote, uh, my mom came to eat lunch with me once at school when I was 10. We had just moved to a new city. I just got new braces and my teeth hurt like hell. I was being bullied relentless by some dipshit who I won't name here. I still remember the name and I'm nearly 40. <laughs> and it was so early in the school year, I had no actual friends. I understand those some pretty extreme circumstances all rolled into one giant ball, but just because someone is 10 doesn't mean they don't need their parent at lunch once in a while. Which I think like, that's like one thing I want to like separate out from here. Right. I think like the revolt is over uh, like very handsy parents that are not allowing their children to live their own lives and are getting involved to a degree that they are both trying to over uh protect and often living a new life through their children um that is different fundamentally different from recognizing that your child needs attention that every once in a while like It is worthwhile to like skirt around like social norms and things like that. Like, so I want to like make sure that like, I I wanted to highlight that comment and your story is interesting because I want to make sure that like, I'm not like every rule is meant to be bent and broken if like the circumstances are are right. And they're not, there are reasons why a parent would want to do something like this and should do something like this. Like these are very specific types of parents that I think are causing harm to their children's development by being unable to right. let go of their own hang-ups. It
0: is super important as a kid to get out there and to not be in the same social situation all the time. You have to meet new people and figure out who you are and figure out how to operate in a world in which you do not have the immediate safety net of, of your direct family all around you. It's super important. My question ends up being about like is this – this is a family this is a a a, a city or a town where like you said the median income is like $200,000 for a family i'm curious like for me the ideal is a, a, a an 8-year-old goes to school spends time at school with teachers with with their peers comes home and still gets to spend time with their family i'm curious right. is this professional life like is this something like they're not getting quality time at home or is this literally just Parents who don't want to let go and who are both seeing their their kids at even in the evenings and at night and also like and I'm going to be there at lunch too because that is like the worst possible version of this that skews me out the absolute most the the version of it where it's like well you know mom or dad has to go to is working late again and so they're going right. to sneak into school that part still sucks but that sucks for this and other more,
1: and more pa- more most parents both parents are working these days right, right? Like, exactly so it's like there there are lots of situations where you know uh you know my 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 own family you know both my wife and I both work full time and have to work super hard to right. make sure you you have that time and this is before my child is old enough to be in you know mm. events every day right. um and has homework and stuff like that but rob i know you've wanted to say something
2: no i i just think uh the the feeling i get is that this is like there's there are more and more people working from home there're more and more people with like flex time and so I do kind of, like, I think a subtext of this article is that predominantly who's doing this are people who have, like, spending time with your kid in this way is another luxury item. It is a luxury item you can afford as a parent. It, it that That is sort of the subtext when you see things about they're bringing, they're trying to buy lunch for the kid's friends. They're trying to bring in special lunches. Uh, so the implication, to me at least, is for the most part, the people who are interested in doing this. Uh, Are fairly well off, who have decent, you know, white collar jobs, probably with flex time, work from home. Um, The the thing that I struggle with is, I internalized so much when I was a kid in school about you just don't talk, just don't talk to your parents. Your parents are basically Uh the cops, right? Uh And you do not talk to you don't talk to teachers, you don't talk to hall monitors, you do not talk to your parents. You handle your shit. And I took a kind of pride in that, right? Like I was, you know, by the age of 10, 11 years old, I was an independent actor within school, right? You know, I kept my own counsel. I <laughs> obeyed the rules, that kind of thing. The thing is, that also <laughs> let me put up with a lot of stuff I probably shouldn't have, mm-hmm. right? You know you know what I mean? Like, right. they, like, the thing is, when you have people who are like fucking relentlessly coming for you, uh... You know, I didn't so much have problems with bullies, but I had friends who get on the wrong side of bullies and I would get pulled into that shit all yeah, the time. Yeah. And suddenly it's me that they're coming for. And I would just keep that under the radar. And my parents would never know, you know, why was I so antsy? Why was I so intense heading into school on a given morning? Right? Why did I come home and I was just like pissed off and wouldn't speak? And in retrospect... I should have been a lot more socialized to think involving my parents in my education and my life in school was an okay and healthy thing. <laughs> I should not have yeah. become someone who abetted a <laughs> a juvenile culture of uh cover-ups and uh you know quiet terror and abuse. And so when I see a story like this on the one hand there's a part of me that like reacts viscerally to no, Mom, no, get <laughs> out. But there's this other part of me that sees that reaction and hears in it the standard boomer back in my day, kids didn't, you know, that kind of judgmental nonsense about how being treated like shit and abandoned by your parents and neglected by your educators was somehow okay or normal and made people better or stronger in some way rather than just damaged
1: so it's it's interesting, so you know as a relatively new parent, you know, two and a half years or so uh now one of the patterns I've noticed amongst uh my friends is is especially true amongst the men um in which like my father my father's father like the like the what it meant to be a dad is like shifting a lot. there are a lot of uh uh folks in, in the father role that want to actually be a co-parent that want to be sort of involved and I think even I think this is this dynamic is, is true of both mothers and fathers where you fall in the spectrum. People don't want to just be parents. They want to be friends with their kid. That's often something that happens like later in life, right? Like when the dynamic shifts as everyone becomes their own independent actor, but it's something that less happens when the children are young. And so just as a father, like I want, you know, I looked at what my father didn't do Um, I hear that through my mother of like, you know, you know, my dad wasn't really changing diapers, doing stuff like that. I mean, he was working. My mom was a stay at home mom. There were certain gender dynamics and stereotypes, um, at play there. Um, but like, I didn't want that. Like I wanted to be involved. I want to be in the trenches. I want to be doing all the things that I think a parent really should be involved in. I think part of that is, and I think in, in tied into that is this sense amongst, uh, parents of a certain generation of this generation who want to be deeply involved in, their kids' lives because they didn't really get a lot of that from their own parents and recognize there's a gap there that should be that should be filled and then this is where i think that's where helicopter parenting spins off from is when that goes too far when is realizing that um there are certain things that you know kids have to do on their own the kids need to have be given the certain freedoms and then there's also this line where like you want to be your kid's friend you want to be genuinely a friend to them but like how does that change? What does that mean? Like, where are the lines on that? And, like, recognizing where those lines are, especially once it's not only that, like, you're friends to them. Like, they become your friend. And then, like, letting go of those things, realizing when that has becomes toxic, is probably, like, difficult to find the lines on. So I think, like, there are deeply, like, ge- often genuinely good reasons that, like, there can be, like, the helicopter parenting where people just can't fucking let it go. But I think probably more often than not, there are people that just, like, Crave a connection with their kid and don't know when to to sever that connection, or because it is both. It's probably more painful to the parent than it is to the kid, but the parent rationalizes to themselves that it's actually about the kid when it's really more about
2: themselves. Mm-hmm. I would tell you all about how I started collecting protection money in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Rob, I'm gonna have to Rob. go get a
1: beer, uh, and then Rob, you can me. start.
0: Oh, you gotta do this, Rob. Patrick, get your beer. (laughs) It's Wednesday. Yeah. Happy volunteer day, everybody. Patrick left. People
2: sure volunteer their cash to me. All right, I'm good. Okay, so... My memories of this are very spotty. I'm so (laughs) nervous. Like, I don't remember... Like this made so little impression on me that my mom is the only one who remembers this. In the middle to late of grade school, uh, I started coming home with extra money, and to the point like I like I, I would be sent off every day with a buck twenty five for school lunch money. Uh, that's what it was back then, and I would come home with like six seven bucks a lot of it in quarters
1: (laughs) that's a lot of money
2: yeah and my mom was like what the hell's going on and i was like well so these kids keep like at lunch like i can barely get any food because kids keep giving me money to stand by them in line and my mom was like what I was like, I don't know. Like, they just they give me money and I stand by them in line. They get their food. We go to their table. And then I go stand with somebody else in line. <laughs> Rob. So here's the thing you Rob. need to know I never uh-huh. had a growth spurt. I was always like about a head taller uh-huh. and like 20, 25 pounds bigger than anyone in my grade, <laughs> which meant I was bigger than most of the kids in the grade above. And as big as or bigger than some of the kids, a grade above that. And what my mom figured out was happening. Oh, my God. Was that kids were view- viewing me as some kind of uh, protector, I guess. Yeah. To stand by them in line. And if they were, if I, if they were my friends, nobody would fuck with them for that right. day. It never dawned on me at all there was anything weird about this. Like, I just, like, people would give <laughs> right. me money. And I was like, you know, as, as I told my mom, age seven, I'll take any motherfucker's money, giving it away. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> They're going to, so, you know,
0: they would rather give you a quarter than give the bully from grade five a dollar. The invisible yeah.
2: hand works, Rob. This, this is, is you. The, this is the thing. <laughs> Rob, the yes. invisible fist, Zach, me. So my mom, like, put a stop to it. She was like, she went to the principal and was like, hey. Uh, So my my son is being basically used to like as some sort of sheepdog to keep bullies (laughs) away. But also what the hell is happening in your lunchroom that a bunch of kids have apparently gotten the message that they need a kid to stand by them in line to prevent kids from like taking their chocolate milk and shit. Uh, But this like it never dawned on me at all that this is what was happening. I just sort of accepted that, eh, people want to give me money, I'll stand by them in line, walk them to the table, and, uh, and 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 go back. And I've always sort of wondered, where the hell would that, like, I've always sort of lived, like, was I secretly the bully? I've always sort of wondered that. I don't think I yeah. was, I'd remember that. But also, what would have happened if my mom hadn't put a stop to it? Yeah. Would you have like? Because it would have
1: had to, it, yeah, there would have had to be some sort of climax to this. And it wouldn't have. And it would have resulted in a fight. Or Rob, right. are you
0: thinking you could have gamed it? Are you thinking you could have found the line to walk so that you lo-
1: would you? But then would you? Would you have started paying off the bullies? Like, all right, look, 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 I'm going to cut you into my game, and we all profit.
0: Oh shit. Rob just had to leave to get a drink. Or <laughs> my, I don't. Rob, Rob said one, bro. one, one second, one second, one second, and I walked away. I don't know where he's going. I can see a beautiful. <laughs> going to go find a bag of quarters. I know. He's like, well, actually, folks, I did. Boom. He's going to come back with Wealth of Nations. Is what he's going to do. He's going to come back with a big hardcover.
1: <laughs> I will. I will mention that, like all of this, like this, par- once I realized we were committing the topic, I did get like deeply stressed because I find the. Uh, the notion of discussing parenting techniques to be yeah. super stressful. There's no science
0: to it, and everyone cares. There's, well, there's no
1: science to it, and when people tell you, "Oh, this is the way I do things, the way you should do things," people take that, and I admit to ha- I having taken that as like a deep personal offense. Um, that like, oh, you're doing, you're not doing it this way, so you're doing it wrong. Right. So you're doing <laughs> the to
0: most important that. thing
2: you'll do in your life wrong, huh?
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. that's one way to do it, I
2: guess. <laughs> Rob. Rob's back. I'm just still haunted by the idea that I could have been, like, a 10-, 12-year-old gang leader, basically. Yeah. I could have well, I could have been Don Corleone of my elementary school. Who was going to fuck with you?
0: Or you could have even had them fuck with you strategically to prove the necessity of your
2: protection. Oh, like a faked fight or something like or, that.
0: Or one day you get sick. You don't get <clears throat> to go into school that day. And guess what? That's the day the bully strike. You know? Proving. Cough cough, yeah. ooh, I'm coming down with yeah. something. Oh man, better
1: call mama. I better you get some need money. me on that wall.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know what? Cough syrup that costs a lot of money. Some, you know <laughs> that affects the whole class <laughs> if I'm not there. Y'all better chip in.
2: It's <laughs> here's a bucket. <laughs> it is such take a it back to thing. your table. Like I, I did the math at some point. Like some kids were cu- must have been coughing up seventy-five cents. To me, just give me all the change so from most of the, their the like lunch money like maybe they're well, getting it was dessert buck money. 25 for the full lunch okay. plus dessert so the yeah. parents would send them off with two bucks right and i would just get the 75 cents to like stand with them uh and keep the bullies at bay um it was a decent little racket i guess <laughs> you know <laughs> like to the point my mom was concerned If parents had just been allowed to come to to lunch,
0: you would have only been able to prey on those whose parents couldn't afford to come to lunch. And then it all works out. The American dream But who knows what opportunities
2: I missed out on. Maybe, like, a parent could have brought me over and was like, Rob, Rob, what else would you do for lunch money? (laughs) If Hiram Lodge and Riverdale. I need a man of your skills. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Get recruited into. Rob, have you heard of the code of (laughs) Omerta? uh if only
0: well i'm glad we got this (laughs) vision into an alternate history where Rob acne becomes
1: funny that it makes it even funnier that you barely remember it because i'm sure sure we all have stories of like like i have a vague memory of like one of the only times i got in trouble like in in like elementary school like when you were too young to like really know what was going on like i know that like i broke some kids glasses but the kid was enormous and I i have vague memories of him being like he, he's used that enormity to uh, like bully and be shitty. He was like one of the fifth graders, and so I know that like the reason I, at least my memory of what I did, what I did was because like he was shitty. But like I don't know, maybe
2: I was the shitty one and I just broke his fucking glasses. Yeah, I you know what I'm I mean, I'm on team big dude uh, against Patrick. <laughs> like I think that guy was probably yeah, you would some be. gentle giant. Yeah. Uh uh-huh. <laughs> Was just mean. Your video game console shitty. <laughs> Well, this fucking fifth graders. Oh, you think that's and, uh, you a good know, version worked. of Aladdin? Fuck you.
1: <laughs> hey, when they put tetherball in, it was yeah. unfair because the fifth graders were so tall that they could hit the ball over you, and that just—that wasn't talent. That's just height. God. Nothing anyway. wrong with being tall. Uh, anyway. Uh, <sighs> that's your parents. Yeah, <laughs> your parents. <laughs> the controversy of parents who eat lunch, the children
2: at school, by Taylor Lorenzo of The Atlantic. That's my. Go read it. So I uh, I don't really have an intro to this topic because I'm kind of too angry to talk about it uh, right now. <laughs> oh my now. god! This I think is, uh, we can, I
0: can I can do a quick one. I can do a quick one for you. That way, please do. You Austin. can have it. You can have it. <laughs> you can have it colored by my frustration instead of your rage. So there is a podcast. Jesus uh, Christ! Can you believe it? <laughs> uh, it is called the More Perfect. Uh, podcast, More Perfect. It is by WNYC. It is produced by Jad Abumrad, who, if you know Jad Abumrad's name, you know him as the co-producer of Radiolab, a podcast that has been airing on WNYC and NPR. Someone just dropped something outside this door Uh, uh, for years now. Radiolab is a radio show about science topics hence the lab in the name um and at its best the show combines the expertise of its two lead producers and and the shared expertise of its entire production staff obviously jad is a uh, a a music uh professional someone who went to music school who understands musicology and music theory but who's also just like in the culture of music and art and performance and the the co-host of radio lab Uh, is, uh, why am I, Robert Krolwich and Robert Krolwich is like a veteran old school science journalist who showed up, you know, in the, in the seventies and eighties on CBS television, uh, who has been in radio, uh, doing science reporting for NPR for years and years and years, like old school vet dude. And the two of them end up taking really interesting, hard science stories and putting cultural spins on them, Uh, at their best, they're super entertaining and informative, at their worst, they become a little too Malcolm Gladwelly, a little too TED Talky for me. So that's Radio Lap. So,
1: well, and I also should like say they, they were early in the form of yes. podcasting and in, for, in terms of experimenting on what it meant. It wasn't just it's not just radio, which is people talking into a microphone. Yes. They treated it like the, the the analogy I would use here is like if you listen to A Life Well Wasted, Robert Ashley is like tremendous. Video game podcast in which there was a lot of he was treating the podcast as often as there was mute. It wasn't just there was music in the background. It's that the audio manipulation, the the way audio was used, like it was a form of music that also involved storytelling and like radio, like Radiolab or Life of Wasted doesn't exist without Radiolab because yeah. Radiolab was like sort of like the, the 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 origin story for a lot of like podcasts that have spun off to like really incorporate. Uh, Or, like 99% invisible. Like, those are all super. High production,
0: like, like very touched, very much you can see the hand of the producer versus, uh, you know, think about the show like Radiolab, the way you think of like a really, really fancy website, uh, like Prestige Journalism, um, Cover Snowfall. Where you click, where you click through, and there's data graphics exploding all over the page, and there's interactive things that you're playing with, and you can dig into files and do strange, you know, the interactive stuff, right? On the on the web, on in radio, in, in, on in podcasting, it's like the use of music, it's the use of, of digital effects, uh, lots of lots of uh, material from the archives being used, old footage or old old recordings, et cetera. Um, Jad recognizes a few years ago that we're at an interesting political moment and decides to make a show, uh, a a sideshow, a series originally just about the Supreme Court. The first season of More Perfect is focused on the history of the Supreme Court, gives a focus on a couple of landmark cases, things that would, would set the stage for, you know, centuries of Supreme Court rulings and help you come to understand what the Supreme Court is in a material way by way of good, interesting magazine-style radio stories with this touch of Radiolab-style heavy production. The current season of More Perfect, which is... There were two seasons, There right? were two good seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two good seasons. I, yeah, I, I think, think it's, two yeah, good was, seasons. Yeah. Um, they're in the third season now, and I sent you a message probably... Uh, so I originally remember leaving jury duty and listening to an episode of this and going, I have to do a waypoint about More Perfect. Are we allowed to do waypoints about things I'm furious about? Then about a month <laughs> after that, I did. I sent y'all a message on Discord that was like, I have to. I have to do this. We have to talk about more perfect. Uh, we won't be recording waypoints for a bit, but man, do I want to slam more perfect for dropping the ball this year. This year's season of more perfect. Instead of just being good radio stories about the Supreme Court, is framed around this concept of a concept album. Uh, it, is, it is pitched at the beginning of every episode, or at least the, the beginning of the. Rob is Rob <laughs> is just staring at the
1: ceiling, doing all that he can. Every fiber of his being is attempting to not interrupt your 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 intro. And I know. I just want to shout out Rob.
2: Uh,
0: shout out to Rob Hold for like, what if having... Hameldrops
2: drops were a podcast?
0: <laughs> okay, I'm gonna get there. I'm gonna get there. Uh, it is framed as like adult. Well, I'm framing it as adult contemporary schoolhouse rock. Uh, it they've taken all of the all of the the amendments to the Constitution and they've gone out and commissioned musicians. That the production team likes to write songs about each of the the amendments and they're packaging those together in groups between of between two and five into episodes and playing the songs and then grouping them with what they are calling and i feel like this just like really saying the quiet part loud they're calling them the liner notes which really makes the music the like primary thing and the thing is Rob, Rob, Rob is left ducked with... below the Rob, camera at this. We might be doing push-ups. Rob decided he's actually
1: he's actually just going to go collect quarters. That, you know what? That's that's Raiders. probably
0: fine. It sucks. It's so frustrating. I feel like they have dropped the ball on timeliness. Rob, can you hear me? Can you give me a thumbs up if you can hear me? He's giving me a thumbs up? He gave a, th- <laughs> a hand, just appeared from below the camera. Uh They've dropped the ball on timeliness. Never has there been a more critical time in my lifetime to talk about the Supreme Court and educate listeners on the Supreme Court. Uh, they've dropped the ball in terms of production, giving giving way to their worst, most, uh, most extreme, most— They're a parody of themselves. Yeah, it's a parody of this production team, which uh, is a production like to, team f- I think is f- skilled and would like to steal from sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and it's just and fundamentally, they're burying good shit under their their worst excesses, and it's so frustrating. Do you want to like
1: like yeah? So uh, here's so the one that's like probably so frustrating. Do you want to set this one up, the, up from the most recent? Well, it's not no. the most recent episode anymore. I think there's been an episode. Uh, was nine, there an episode But episode so eight.
0: The most the the episode I most recently listened to episode episode eight.
1: Eight, uh, I believe, yeah. is
0: about uh, a couple of amendments that we don't hear a lot about. One of them is about the, I'm already doing a better job than they are because I'm talking about the amendment right away. That's, I'm already yep. doing a better job than they are. Yep. They. It uh-huh. is about, and uh, I don't remember the number of the amendment because I'm not I'm not good at these. It's the, I, I do remember it's the 12th amendment. I knew this, um, which is the one that sets up the system for electing a president with a, 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 a vice president in a party. Base, basically, I'm very much summarizing here, but it's basically what it is. And they set it up by trying... Trying to to say, like, hey, um, remember the 2016 election cycle? Do you remember like how much mudslinging there was? And it's like Trump clip, Clinton clip. It's Clinton saying deplorable. It's Trump saying we're not deplorable. It's it's you know Clinton saying uh I can't even think of shit that she said that I think is as just, bad. Yeah, quips, quips back, back and, back and forth. forth, like just these echoey
1: quips, like just mingled in for for like two and a half it's minutes. Really
0: long. It's building this this equivalency between the two, as if running on the promise that you're going to like lock up your your opposition, and also that everyone from Mexico is a secret hyper criminal, like is equivalent to being center right. Making Hillary Ken Bone the
2: EP of this podcast is <laughs> not a good decision this season. <laughs>
0: So and so they do that for like two minutes, and then they set up what this what this amendment is, and they cl- which is interesting, which is an interesting story about like or it's an interesting explanation because because amendments are kind of interesting, and the premise is that when Jefferson and Adams are running against each other. Uh, early on in this country's history, they were vitriolic against each other. They very quickly drop in some like really bad insults the two had against each other that are like shockingly racist, racist and transphobic, and, like, xenophobic, and, even for yeah. even for, for like the time. It was like, which whoa, isn't whoa. marked. They're never like, yeah, those are. We're gonna nah. say some bad shit. They just go for it, and then they they end. The producer ends. By saying, like, what if we didn't have this this amendment? Maybe civility would have been saved. And the exact quote is, I can't help but wonder, wonder, though, if maybe in some small way this amendment fueled some of the hostility from the 2016 election. It took the pressure away to be civilized. Fuck you it took the pressure away to be civilized. Fuck you for saying the pressure to be civilized. Like, motherfucker, this guy was coming down escalators saying that Mexico was sending its best rapists at us. Get a fucking grip. Uh, And it's not even like then, like, oh, pivot
1: to, like, a political scientist who is going to help chart, like, the polarization of the country, maybe to help explain uh, why you would make that bullshit statement. Instead, it, like, then pivots to the best of what, like, More Perfect does, which is, like, an explanation that, like, yo, like, you know how, like, sometimes it's weird where we have these lame duck sessions where, like, we just booted out all the Republicans in Congress, but, like, they get a month to just, like, pass some fucking judges? Like, that's, like... That's wild that we let them do that. Did you know that they used to be able to do that for a full year before they were actually
0: sad? And it's like, that's what? Like, why would we do right. that? Um, and that's like, so I had no idea that, that was true. Know. That's a right. fascinating right. piece of history. And this whole season is, has those things in it. Once an episode, there is a, a, a six or seven minute bit. These episodes go between 25 and 45 minutes leaning towards the latter, the longer Um Every once in a while in an episode you're like wow that's a really interesting little fact order. or oh that's a really interesting 12 minute long story the story of the 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 way um, the you know uh, women's vote is passed is kind of fascinating in the middle of the season there there's a, a, a an episode fairly early on that is about uh, a, a case in which someone is detained without being told what their what their uh, crime is that's fairly interesting there, those moments exist but they're few and far between. They are bookended with songs that are often goofy, that are often completely undercut any sort of seriousness, um, and and that's a hard thing. I don't ask me to write a song about an amendment that I barely know about. Often the musician comes on, and is like, "Well, yeah, Cherry I didn't Glazer
2: know didn't, which was the smart decision." I
0: was
2: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> no, like, "This song was baller." Oh, it's Cherry Glazer. They're awesome. I look up the lyrics, and I'm like. They wrote a song
0: Uh, that has hmm. nothing to know. And then then that's all the best of it. The worst of it is the most navel-gazy, bad metaphor, boiling down something very complicated. And instead of telling it to you in a reported story where what you're doing is looking at a case where this came up or looking at a debate inside of the field of law, which is what previous seasons have successfully done. Now, let's take one word and go talk to an astrophysicist. Okay,
1: yes, we're coming over the boards. Come on, and and, and then at the the
2: tag, you're in. Okay. Talk about episode three. So, the thing that drives me absolutely up the wall about this podcast is that it is a podcast about the Constitution that is seemingly ignorant of the idea that the interpretation of the law is about political power and will. Instead, It turns into, and this is a thing that writers are prone to do, it turns into a podcast about sentence structure and language and definitions and loves following all the way down the rabbit hole just obscure definitional arguments, sentence diagrams, all that good shit that we definitely know 100% is what determines what rights (laughs) we do and don't have and what protections we enjoy under the law. And so we come to the right to privacy. And they quote Douglas's finding in Griswold v. Connecticut uh, that the enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights cast penumbras uh, that create other zones of privacy. And therefore, we have the right to privacy. I'm butchering this a little bit, but the gist is because the Bill of Rights enumerates all these specific protections against like search and seizure... Uh, freedom of belief, expression, religious practice. Douglas's argument is that we also then enjoy a right to privacy because the enumeration of these rights clearly also creates the zone where we have a reasonable expectation of being allowed to live our own lives in peace. And what we do with that is we go to an astrophysicist mm-hmm. and ask him about the astrophysical concept of penumbra's and how they relate to eclipses, and to see if this can, uh, and apologies for this pun, uh-huh. but shed a little light, uh-huh, thank you. on what Douglas was driving at with his with his argument. The right to privacy and Griswold v. Connecticut are hotly contested topics. They are massively important. Roe v. Wade yeah. hangs upon this thread, but ultimately, and this is what this like podcast I think like badly misses and and should sort of pay attention to, is that it is a product of a Supreme Court that is beginning to encounter social problems that our legislature, our country, our polity no longer have the capacity to meaningfully address, that we can't actually adapt the language of the Constitution to handle some of the problems we're beginning to encounter in society, like the fact that ...narrow majorities of people in states can apparently decide to ban women's access to birth control. Right. And so you have someone like Douglas who feels like that just doesn't really make a lot of sense under the Constitution. That, doesn't, does, that does that seem American to you? It really doesn't. Uh, and so he creates a rather novel interpretation of the Bill of Rights to argue that we have this right to privacy. But this is a political decision. This is a political ruling. And if you're framing this as, well, Douglas must have just been on to something about penumbras and the way the light (laughs) flows from the sun across astral bodies. And I think you were actually doing a disservice to this topic. Right. And to the obligation you have to educate your listeners who are curious about these topics. Uh, when you present these arguments, these important things about what we can, can't do as Americans, what protections we have, why these things are, you know, sometimes hinge on the appointment of one fucking shithead to the Supreme Court, when you present that as something that, well, Webster's Dictionary defines penumbra <laughs> as, when you do that, you are misrepresenting how the fucking law works and it goes, how it is enforced.
1: It goes even. They did it with the, the right to bear 100%. arms too. It's
2: like they obsess over the
1: fucking comma yeah. with like oh. ignoring like. Okay. Okay. let's go to that I'm one so too I'm gonna stay on penumbra Tag. for two
0: seconds for two seconds because okay. they do a second thing in that that is worse we just it's bad it's just as bad and they take it a step further which is the end of that podcast the end of that story yeah. is them just kind of luxuriating in the beauty of the penumbra of the
2: vagueness oh. of language there is
1: Maybe he just meant for it opens on the fucking
2: shit. drug reference. Oh, it gets so spacey. It gets so deep. the sound of a fucking bong <laughs> rip.
3: Like literally,
2: there's a full there's a mic put up to you a fucking bong while somebody takes a huge hit off it, and it's like, whoa, man. The ninth, tenth, and eleventh amendments are just so spacey. <laughs> Even man. a life well
0: wasted never did that. Even Robert Ashley, yeah, Bobino yeah. couldn't bring himself to do that shit. <laughs> Uh, the, thing, the 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 uh, the amazing thing there is there is such a there's a, a good version of that episode out there somewhere. There's a good episode that uses the word penumbra that even says here's what the dictionary definition is of penumbra and then follows ways in which the vagueness therein has been used by political proponents by people with power to shift what is politically and legally uh, available action in this country and they just eject from that entirely.
2: Go ahead and talk about the gun the gun one. Okay, so the gun one was especially infuriating because, again, they go to sentence diagramming. Um, and it, it, they start with the classic, a well-regulated militia being necessary. You know, that, that whole framing, the, the mm-hmm. parenthetical clause set off by commas. And they go into sentence diagramming land. What could it possibly have meant? Such a weird sentence. And, like, as if a copy editor... Or, you know, doing a line edit is really the person who's going to get to the bottom of this. What could it possibly have meant? And what they never actually do get to is the fact that the United States colonies had just fought a war where the like preponderance of their forces were state militias. This is mm-hmm. this is a weird omission to make in this. What could possibly have been going through their minds? Well, what is going through their minds is the fact that Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution specifically says that the United States has to have a navy, doesn't say anything about it has to have an army. The framers were extremely concerned about there being an army. Uh, And so there was kind of this expectation that national defense would be secured by militia, the way it was in the American Revolution, that a temporary national army might be raised, but predominantly the security of the United States territory would be in the hands of state militias, uh, people like the Minutemen they never get to any of this no which is important real world context like what does somebody mean when they said something well if we're go- if if you want to play that game of well what does this sentence mean what 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 was the originalist intent it is maybe a little relevant to consider what had just happened within the living memory of the people who wrote the fucking sentence but they never do because what this podcast trades on is the sort of perplexed affable bewilderedness in the face of the U.S. Constitution. Oh, what could possibly have happened here? What a weird thing. It's this affected surprise at every single thing that like, I cannot handle after a few episodes.
0: So here's the most amazing and, and illustrative thing for me. In the podcast feed, if you don't go to their website, if you go on like a phone or, or a, a podcast player, a podcast app, a podcatcher, one of those things, You will see September 18th, The Most Perfect Album, Episode One. This season, blah, blah, blah. 27 amendments, The Most Perfect Album. Let's get started. We look at the First Amendment. We look at the Second. We look at the Third Amendment, blah, blah, blah. The next episode in the feed is not Episode Two. It is the next day, the day after they published the first episode. They published something called The Gun Show Reprise or Reprise. And And I listened to that. Did you? Okay. Yes. So. That's a that's a story that they that they published originally a year prior or two years prior is one of their first episodes it's a stronger episode first and foremost it deals with specific moments of gun activism at the very least it digs into the 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 politicization of the nra it talks about the black panther uh party and the ways in which black panthers pushed against and and, and used second amendment rights uh to push against local police action and to like reclaim parts of of oakland um it's a very specific story written and recorded Prior to this to this occasion. And the reasons dropped back in to the feed is because uh, of another shooting. And that illustrates why it is so important to tackle these subjects in a way that's interested in context, that's interested in the the actually telling a story and informing your, your audience about the topic and not just giving them like brain junk food, not just giving them brain candy. You're like, oh, I heard an interesting story about the comma today. And you can tell the comma story if you're also willing to then extrapolate out either a specific real uh, uh, reaction and real events that came from specific readings of it in different ways, or if it's one tiny brick in a wall because they they
1: else. could have been saying that like hey the, the 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 vagueness that they're falling into as sort of like a trippy trap like that vagueness is what political power has used to exploit 100%. the expansion of like gun rights and like that's where you take the grammar thing and then like actually explain like this thing that we're fumbling with here like the fumbling is 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 politicians taking advantage of people's own ignorance over the context in which this is originally written but that just never happens and it's so profoundly disappointing because uh, because of how strong the first two seasons could be at times yeah. in explaining extremely difficult yeah. topics in which um, I don't have time like it does the th- it, it explains things in a historical context that like I don't have the time to re- re- read a whole book on it but I do want to know more about it. And they did the thing that you want, which is reporter goes and condenses it down into something that's manageable and understandable and gives you a, a broad understanding of history in a way that is, is also entertaining and fun to listen to so that you can, like, share it with other people that don't necessarily want to go read a Wikipedia page about the amendment. They may not give you a full context anyway. And it's a, it's a, it is especially in the moment we're in, in the Trump era, like – Something like that is more important than ever as, like, foundational norms are shifted and pushed and pulled. That, like, the fact that, like, they're not rising to the moment and instead got obsessed with jerking themselves off over fucking music pieces is just, like, it's so disappointing. Like, this is one of the only podcasts I ever gave money to. Like, I was, like, this is important. Like, this, like, means a lot to me. Like, I handed over a bunch of money to them when they were asking
2: for it. And, like, this is what it went and got Mm -hmm. used for? Like, fuck off. It's so... I went and I listened to their for the, the the first stab they took at making making the gun episode. And it is a better podcast. It's more informative. It's not up its own ass. It's interested in specific moments in characters and people with their stories. But I do think a frustration I have with this season of the podcast, but even when I go back and listen to earlier output, and I do need to listen to some of those uh Radio Lab episodes y'all decided about the There's show stuff being in the Who I best. think specifically would like about Radio yeah. Lab. Yeah. But there are also I'm at this point where I listen probably to too many podcasts, mm-hmm. too many explanatory podcasts. Here's how a thing happened in history, you and <laughs> they have certain affectations that if you listen to a bunch of these back to back to back, those affectations start to grate a little bit. This podcast, like, hit pushes all the sliders all the way out to the right, and. I don't know if maybe it's just a matter of like you're just too extremely <laughs> online when it comes to podcasts, but but I think also there's something in the way the interlocutor is framed in these podcasts. Yeah. The the someone who fundamentally is just kind of curious about this weird story. It's all just anecdote to him. It's all like it is some tedious cocktail party bore who is looking for more fodder, more material, more not more ways to make. You know, an everyday problem or a weighty concern come down to some sort of Malcolm Gladwellian triviality. Yeah. And even when the show like is apparently trying to be better, like with the first Stab at the Gun episode, it still has this voice. It still has this... Oh, gee, what a fascinating story. Here, let me edit all this a little too closely together so that (laughs) at every single moment you feel the editor's hand on your shoulder, making sure you're not bored, making sure that every realization is accompanied by a little audio cue or a little music cue uh, that lets you know that something kind of interesting has happened. And the gun show was interesting to me because you could even hear some of the people he's interviewing. Starting to chafe against maybe even the interviewing style, the old Black Panther he's talking to has this air of impatience to him as he's trying to relate the story, because at every time the interviewer speaking, uh, and I assume it's, I assume it's Jad. Uh, uh,
0: I don't, I don't they, they think have, Jad is it's not just that. I, yeah. I, I
2: actually don't think it's Jad doing that interview because a field reporter or another producer so, yeah. of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But every time, every time the interviewer is like asking these questions. And you hear a version of the same sort of interview style on Serial, for instance, this season, which is pulling it off much better because I think it's coming from a place of maybe, maybe, maybe greater sincerity, uh, greater seriousness. Mm-hmm. But every time you hear this person talking to this old Black Panther, it's this kind of, gee, really? Mm-hmm. Do tell. And to this guy, he lived it. This is his real story. This is important shit that people don't remember. And it's not some novel, did you know, kind of thing to surprise people with. Like, oh, here's some uh, counterintuitive knowledge to sort of blow your mind. These are real important freighted moments from his life that also speak a great deal to uh, the political situation of his community and our nation. Yeah, and the interviewer is in there, always trying to frame it as kind of a goofy, funny anecdote.
0: It's it's content, right? And I I will say this is one of those things that I've been paying close attention to for a long time. I I you know, Radiolab, all of the all of the NPR shows that I listen to or that I occasionally dip into because. I have a toothache and I'm in bed and I need like content to absorb. And so I'll put on 30 episodes of Planet Money because I can do nothing except listen to these people talk. I do that with, as an active listener, not as a passive listener, right? I'm not like, aha, now I know how the, the you know, technology trade in Dubai works and that is it. Now I know about Russian cowboys. It's a lot of like, OK, here's a good first level introduction to topics I don't know. I've never read about Russian cowboys and the beef market in Russia before. That's interesting. I can build on that. I can learn about that more. Um, But the the thing that's been gnawing at me more and more are the stories or seeing shows struggle, specifically produced shows, who can hide their ideological biases and often don't even even intend ideological biases but have them um, in the production method. You listen to something like – Slate's political Gab Fest, citations needed, Chapel Trap House—you know where all of those shows are coming from. It's very clear if you are politically aware that each of those shows has their own political biases, their own political ideologies at work because they're roundtable discussions. They uh, maybe they produce evidence for something. They, they you listen to a clip or something, but it's not a produced show in the sense that something like Radiolab or a Life or a Life Well Wasted or The City or Serial is. Um, and so this year specifically, I've been looking a lot at the ways in which shows that that depict black communities uh, either let the 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 people whose stories are being told tell those stories or else tell it for them and at its best i think it does look like the city where again and again you're returning to the the scene of the crime you're talking to the people who are negatively impacted by this terrible mishandling by the city of chicago and by the fbi eventually by the way people who haven't finished the city should go back and finish the city because
2: yeah, it fucking go, it goes to some yeah, i didn't get to the fbi it goes to I, part. like
0: yeah dog oh uh,
1: dude that that show goes to like what it's so smart oh. uh, what austin's touching i was like it's it the, the show ex- expands in scope and uh ever more broadening terms, even going to different geographical, like smartly going to different geographical yeah. locations that have on its face nothing to do with what's happening, but is thematically in line. But what it never forgets from the beginning to the end is always returning to like that neighborhood in Chicago, like those people and their voices. And, like, and it always uses it ground. It doesn't just, they're not just right. characters. Like, they are the story, and it never forgets them.
0: From even serial this season, which I think is the best season they've made, and is is like kept me listening as a like week to week wrapped with attention. I was so nervous going into the last episode of serial. I was like <laughs> the last two? last two, but specifically yeah. the last one, coming from the where the, the second last one ends to the last one. I was like ready to ball my eyes out with the last episode, depending on how things were going to shake out. I didn't know, and I was so in- involved with this cat with this person's life, but I almost said character, right? Right? Because even that show, which is the best that season's ever been, or that show's ever been, still does the commits the sin you're talking about, Rob. The reduction of people to characters, the reduction of lives to content, the the like the sanding away of. The listener of anything that would make the listener need to recognize their own complacency and complicit and complicitness with what's happening in the moment. Um, and and no call to action, nothing like that. Like, I will say, serial ends with a specific call to action, and I was like shocked by that. The city ends with with what is basically an advocation for environmental justice by way of allowing people who understand that there is such a thing as environmental justice, the civil rights attached to questions of, of, of uh, environmental justice, like. Actually giving them a space It's the closest, like, have. a really
1: straight-laced reporting yeah, can exactly. get to doing totally. Totally. that. Because it's, it's like, Serial is, like, especially this season, is, like, not pretending. No. It's, like, she's yeah. an advocate. Yeah. Like, and she comes clean about that in a way that, like, helps you forgive weaker elements of the show because she's being more transparent about her role in the process. And the city does accomplish it because it doesn't forget the people, the story... Is about,
0: but it, it was. It's never a show that at the end is gonna be like, and like, here's where you can go. Uh, like, right. March. But more perfect <laughs> feels like it's had to swing so hard in the other direction. This season feels like the show has had to file down any, any even like gesture out of the a, federalist. There's a moment when they, sh-
1: I forgot yeah. about that. I there, there is a sequence uh, talking about the amendment in which. Uh, you know it used to be that senators were not directly elected by the people they were they were just appointed by um states themselves state legislatures and then that changed and then they're like the, the the premise of the segment is like there are people who think like that's bad because uh maybe that doesn't produce like the best candidates uh and they shouldn't be worried about votes and the one the first person they go to is like some people are thinking about this is they just randomly introduce this writer from the federal As if. like they just They just call it a conservative publication, like, wildly ignoring. Like, it is not just to the right. It is a far-right, like, racist shithole publication in which you will find some of the most awful rhetoric, especially 2016 on, just calling them a conservative publication. And I don't know any of the history of that author, uh, 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 that commentator, but I do know that their claim to fame in this segment is that they are a writer for Mm -hmm. The Federalist. And, like, just Just painting away that they are just... From, oh, a conservative publication is just such an abject, advocating your responsibility to get, and this is like fits within the larger criticism we have here. of Like no, no cont- actual context for what you are talking about. You cannot talk right,
0: about, the 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 f-
2: about the Federalist without talking about what the Federalist used is. used to
0: tag stories with black crime. Like don't get it twisted.
2: I, I do not feel like this podcast also reckons with the fact that this, the history of American con law is the history of the bad guys winning. Hmm. And this podcast often seems to frame things as, "Gee, it's so interesting and weird how we ended up in this strange place because of these." <laughs> I found myself thinking a lot as I listened to this about um the first Justice Harlan, and he's a post he's a he's a he's a post Civil War Justice. Uh, his probably best known work is his descent in Plessy v. Ferguson, mm-hmm. uh, where he basically says we all know what is going on here. Right, we all know what "separate but equal" is meaning to enshrine, and to what ends it is working. Like, let's not play fucking dumb here, and act like we don't know that this is about sort of enshrining in law white supremacy. And he's he's descending because he loses that argument. He lost a lot of his arguments in his time, but I think a lot about Harlan because Harlan is the guy who has a front row seat for watching the Supreme Court gut laws that are meant to enshrine civil rights and equality under the law. And he knows it's happening. He knows the way it's being twisted. He knows that we just fought a bloody civil war to establish the 14th Amendment, that all citizens are citizens of the United States and they're equal under the law. And he's watching the Supreme Court give away that victory time and again, just reset to status quo antebellum. In defiance of what the law said, the intention of passing those amendments, they don't give a shit. And a lot of that precedent is still with us today. We've had to find other ways around it. We've had to find other ways to handle that legacy. But more perfect, and maybe it's in the DNA of the show. Maybe it's right down to the title. I don't know. (laughs) But the way it frames all this is that it's this really childish view of history where it's predetermined, where, where, the, where the good faith arguments were being made. And because of these just controversies in the text, the weirdness of language, just the vagaries of fate, here we are at this moment in time. How did we get here? Well, let me talk about the wa- wild and wacky story of the U.S. Constitution. And that ain't it. That is right. not the story. And if that's the story you're telling, what you're telling is Propaganda you are basically like you are you are doing the You're new version of we the, the people with a soundtrack
0: yeah 100% like i i i don't joke when i compare – when i say that it's like a ted talk i mean that in the most brutal way to both ted talks and to more perfect it is it is candy it is it is supposed to make you feel good about the structures that are already here it's supposed to make you feel like well the thing we got is pretty good. The thing we got has gotten us this far and it's going to get us a better place eventually. And if it doesn't, hey, look, we can change it. We, we, we already built this thing with our own two hands. There's no, rec- there's no reckoning who's with. Who is we? Yeah, who is we? There's no reckoning with who is we. And there is no reckoning with the idea that sometimes you've dug a, a hole too deep to get out of with the shovel you brought in, right? Um, that's a hard question it's It's rough, like uh, uh the u k is going through this right now in some real ways, in which the there are things happening in the government that have not happened in a long time, if ever, and the the there isn't precedent, there isn't precedent for the sorts of changes because the work that was done years and, years and years and years and years and years ago didn't didn't even understand what work would need to be done with ideas of nationhood and statehood, and so we're there's so many things for us that are that problem that are like. Not just is it not is is our union not more perfect? Is it flawed in ways that cannot be fixed? I I got a, a piece of my leg cut out of me when I was young. Talking about childhood stories, I was running through the the uh, the basement of my school carrying a big box of chocolate because we had to bring them upstairs for everyone to to take home and then do fundraisers with you go door to door. You sell candy. They'd waxed the floor. Them. I fell, I hit a baseboard radiator, they lost a chunk of my shin. They could not find it. I still have a dent in my leg. I will never not have that dent in my leg. That is the country in some real ways. There are things you cannot turn back. There are things that you cannot like. just like, okay, we'll just stitch it closed. But the show acts as if there is infinite material. As if there could all you could always not only re- repair what's missing, but you can always build something better, and that's a, an optimistic view of the future. But I can't have that view cleanly in a year where the Supreme Court is holding is having hearings on immigration, is having hearings on human rights violations, and uh, and foreign companies is having hearings and, and, and making and making rulings on things like workplace arbitration, where today. I, as an individual worker, have less have fewer rights than I would have had a year ago if I wanted to bring suit against uh, the company that I worked for because now I could be pressured and pushed into doing that away from the court doing that through arbitration those are the things that are being voted on this year the things that are being voted on by the supreme court this year are things like gerrymandering or have been things like gerrymandering things like privacy and
2: abortion like these aren't tiny things this wasn't the year for your two fucking the experiment
0: right exactly like, this thing,
2: and this thing like even in the framework of this podcast where you know there's always time we can get this right eventually with some of the stuff we made real progress toward getting it right and we have seen that progress reversed in our lifetimes because, again, it's not about what's written on a piece of paper; it is about political will and capacity to enforce it.
0: I don't know any. I don't know how anyone listens to this season of the show and then decides to do anything. A, a good, well, no, because it it, it's, it leans
1: so far into we want you to feel smart yeah. without actually learning anything yeah. along the way. Like there are podcasts, and like Radio Lab has been guilty of this. More perfect in its earlier seasons, we're less guilty of this, in which it's like we want you to make it like. You can tell your friends that like you listen to a podcast about the yeah. Supreme Court, and it's like you do, but like, did you learn anything other than like a something a piece of trivia you can like share with someone over a drink? And the the show used to lean in a different yes. direction. This season found a better specifically balance, feels like right? they were
0: trying to rein it in. It feels like it.
1: There, and also, there was something that happened in 2016 for a lot of people. Right, like the veil that dropped for a lot of people, in which like it was wrong to just assume that politics was fine and everything was mostly okay and it's, it's marginally getting better over time. Like that, like there were lots of people that were getting hurt and people, people were ignoring that. But in 2016 changed that for a lot of people and turned a lot of people from just political observers into political activists. And there's been meaningful shifts for people that have happened in that time. And there were meaningful shifts that happened in how journalism is conducted how we talk about politics and policies and both sides this team um, did this this even. feels like this feels like and but it feels like something from right. before yes. then it feels like a pre-2016 when you could this all was just it's just politics and history and like things have fucking changed and things are much more uh, on a knife's edge than they were before and we're much more aware of that knife's edge but this feels like something from five well, years the ago. That's thing so
0: wild to me about this is if you go back and you look at Radiolab's shift after the election, or even in the lead up to the election, looking at Radiolab, they started doing stories on things like uh, police violence. Things like uh, Mm -hmm. contemporary issues of segregation inside of the American school, uh, American public schools, uh, things uh, around gender, around uh, queerness, things that they were getting heat from their audience about doing. They were if you went and read their comments, you read the responses on Facebook, on Twitter. It was lots of people who were like, I'm here to learn about genetics, not to learn about how police aren't great. And that is it is. So strange to see, because they've continued doing that on the main show on Radio Lab. This, you know, this year included a long, a long multi-part. Uh, episode or series on on abortion rights. Uh, they're um, in the process of doing a, another side project about the 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 quote unquote gay cure, the history uh, that went into that. Uh, and I haven't listened to that yet, but I know they're doing that show. So I'm not vouching for, it, but I know they they are tackling those sorts of topics. So for this year, in this moment, to fall into their worst vices, into their most exe- their most uh, uh, detached excesses, is just so disappointing. I expected better from them. And I like, I, the second I started listening to this season, I, I immediately was filled with a sort of dread because it felt like an abdication. I don't expect everyone to do everything right. And I say this as someone who runs a, web, a, pub site, uh, a website a, uh, like Waypoint. We have these excesses. We can be too twee, we can be detached. I can write a piece about how much I love like exploring the wilderness of Breath of the Wild, and say nothing of the fact that it has at a, for for like a, you know a, a non-insignificant part of its of its game uh, a pretty shitty transphobic joke in it. Right? Uh, we can get onto our high horses about things and forget about the the material costs of things. Sometimes we can get caught up in wanting to do really fancy fun art and forget about uh, lines that shouldn't be crossed. Like I I know I've taken in the L I know to take the L I'm hoping that more perfect in Radiolab takes the L on this season and understands that they had an opportunity to rein in their worst excesses and produce something really powerful and really moving and instead what they chose to do was to pat themselves on the back call in some old connections and make a piece of shit I think I'm good on this show I think you got me you got me to where you started Rob what so came here to do? But also, Rob doesn't like. Rob doesn't. Rob also has like on a base level like the
2: audio product, like production like yeah, makes true, him more. True,
0: true, true. So. I'm gonna still listen to what this team makes because I yeah. still. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how it goes. Well, look,
2: I'm sure there's some good episodes. Like I need to like. I need to hear a version of this where it's not all going to be nails on chalkboard. Maybe yes. the editing becomes an additive feature rather than uh, sort of an sure. i think it, I
0: think it really does in the the most hard science stories of Radiolab, partially because you have Krulwich, who is interested in science as science stories, and Jad, who is – You know, the liberal voice, for better and worse, uh, using capital L liberal here, that is interested in individual rights, is interested in people, uh, is interested in like, okay, but how does this affect someone's life? And who grounds a lot of the far out science in the particularities. Um, And and when they separate, they're they're not I don't want to paint them as like an odd couple who's arguing or bickering with each other in those shows, but they're different. They're different propensities and proficiencies allow them to produce a show that can be really powerful. Um, and so I wish that this show brought that same, that same you know, strength to bear because we need it. Um, I, I like Citations Needed a lot. I've listened to, to enough Chapo to know how I feel about Chapo, which is I'm glad Chapo is energizing a lot of people, and also I wish they got some shit right that they get wrong. Um, I think that there is value... I suspect that there is value in making a show like this that reaches an audience that would be that would find those other shows abrasive, and I say that as a propagandist of of the left, right? Like I say that as someone who like wants to to perform rhetoric because I believe in a core value system that I know is hard to get to get across. When I wrote. Uh, a piece on race and Animal Crossing five years ago or whatever, I knew that it would reach other black folks. I suspected it would reach women. I suspected that it would reach queer folks who hadn't seen themselves depicted in games. I suspected it would reach people like me who are on the margins for any number of reasons. But I wrote it knowing that part of the audience would be like white dudes who had never thought about what it would be like to, to not be able to play in a game like Animal Crossing, a game that's all about representation, all about expressivity and creativity, to not be able to control that first fundamental thing, which is what do I look like in this game? And so I wrote for that audience too. I did not write for people who were like me, for like queer black folks. Like I wasn't not writing for that. I wasn't not writing for for women who I knew had, you know, seen the same thing again and again and again in games. But I was thinking, how can I make a persuasive uh, argument? And that's about language. That's about code switching. That's about presentation. That's about knowing which reference to use. That's about doing all of the shit that all of culture has trained them looks like successful argumentation. Um, That looks like looking like argumentation and not just the expression of your moral truth, right? Um, being willing to, to make an argument and not just say this thing is so patently true. And so I think that there is space for a show like A More Perfect, something that has the sorts of production quality, the sorts of shape and sound and length that appeals to the New York Times buying and reading public, to the audience that, that you know – he knows that Malcolm Gladwell's maybe, you know, a, a little specious sometimes, a little bit too facile with some of the, the claims that he makes, but is still, you know, moved by sort of the cleverness of the words. Like, you can be clever and also smart. It's hard. It's actually really easy to be clever and not be smart. It's really easy to be clever and to like sound like you're saying something and to not actually be saying something. I know because I have a thousand fucking unpublished drafts of shit in my in my Google Drive of things that sound pretty clever and that are bad. (laughs) Right. Like I know it's easy. Once you have that skill set, it's like it's like, you know, driving fast. You can drive fast really well, but can you win a race? That's a different question. And so I think there is room for a more perfect that has this sort of radio style that has the format, that has the high-level high production, but that also actually digs into stuff. And I think they've done it here and there before, 100%. I really do in the first two seasons. And I want that show back, and I want more shows like that from the left. And it's hard because... The people who hold the the political beliefs that we do, that I will not shy away from, often do not have the resources or the training that a show from NPR does. <laughs> I get that. Like I get that. Uh, that that uh, three or four people make citations needed, and and I shout outs to
1: them. Yeah, like I want I want a citations needed. Like I like Me citations too. needed a lot, but it's a pretty straightforward yes, yes. production, right? It's two people talking, and then it's an interview, and then a conclusion. That is uh as, I want that. I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. But there are lessons from that that, like, man, if there was a 15-minute version of this that was strung together and had that audio stuff that really bugs Rob, that's the kind of thing I could send to different types of people and know that they would come away with what I come away with in the original format, but that they're not going to stomach the, the, the less produced format because we live in an age in which everything is pr- produced and overproduced and we've gotten used to a certain type of thing and there is use in appealing
0: to people through that and at least at least I, as a I, gateway I, yeah. to that deeper work right I, I rob will never like it and that's fine yeah,
2: yeah. well uh that will do it hey wait yeah. i have a que- wait i have a question rob so you say you listen to a lot of explainer yeah. podcasts. You said you probably listen to two many, But not, not like the big like, ones for what are what? reply all citations needed. Like I'm listening to a lot of history stuff, right? Right. I know. I'm, a- I'm asking like what, what ones would you recommend to people that you oh, like? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, right now, the, the, probably the ones I'm happiest with are the ones we've already referenced, like The City, uh, Serial. Uh, I really got into uh, the, great, the History of the Great War podcast, uh, because I know I know most of that history, but I also have have big gaps. And uh, it had a rough intro because it was sort of a weird passion project. But like as the show moves chronologically deeper into the war, by like mid 1915, it's starting to become a very good sort of potted history of the major moments of the war. And it's not. I think there's times where it still sort of leans on that um, history of Rome style, like familiarity and irreverence for the topic. It uh, seems to be part and parcel of the history podcast, but it also does a very good job of returning to primary and secondary sources, right? What did we learn here? What, do, what, what does this tell us? And I think that's maybe another aspect of this is you got to show your work. You have to... Whenever you're sort of flattening all the disagreement or erasing all the controversy, mm. you're probably doing a disservice to the topic and you're probably unintentionally like misinforming your audience uh, because you are sort of portraying agreement or a consistency version of history that just doesn't exist. Uh, in reality and that's a tricky thing that's that a tricky thing to balance if the more you learn about history the more you realize that there is no one true story of any event no matter how straightforward uh and yet people do need stories that yeah. have like clear beginnings endings middles morals characters motivations but reality does not lend itself to that so how do you provide that narrative structure ethically and responsibly yeah that's the that's the craft oh boy I
0: think that's I think'm I'm, I'm yeah, it yeah. is the craft and it's it's something we thought about here, right like Patrick, you and I spent a lot of time this fall thinking about different formats to doing another podcast we're doing we, We're doing four or five episodes of podcasts a week right now, so we just do not have the bandwidth, but if we got the bandwidth in the future,
1: yeah we, yeah we, we thought about doing some yeah. sort of reported podcast, like what format that takes, like how and specifically, how do we do that given we have zero yeah. resources. From a production standpoint, you know, what's what in this room currently? Talents. Like you two are on the
0: call, me right. here, Natalie there, Cotto over there, and then Danielle literally Danielle. doing the job of, of arguing for the union right now, right? It was in union negotiations, yeah. hoping to get more resources. Uh, like that is there isn't much more. There is us,
1: and it basically and it basically fell apart because it was like even the
0: bare minimum version, which would be of like this, a mix of produ- produced and roundtable, still would have been too much.
1: Still would have would have been like, okay, then all this other yeah. stuff drops out. It's just not going to happen. And so, you know, eventually, hopefully, I'd still love to do that. I've been kicking around ideas like that for years. But yeah, it, it is the thing where you, we, even ourselves, had the rubber hit the road in talking about even just more more citations yeah. needed than Radio than, Lab than, or, uh, or uh, more perfect. You know, yeah. Radio Lab or anything. Rob, like
0: Robert actually yeah. bring back a life well wasted. Where are you? Well, you, know, snick, you know he keeps saying that's music. alive, but not. Yeah, I know. So, al- alternatively, anyway. send me the uh, the uh, po- the post. Let me buy the posters I never got to buy before because I only. <laughs> I have, have money now. <laughs> yeah, I have money yeah. now. I like. Yeah, real talk. <laughs> when a life well wasted was out, there were multiple <laughs> times where I was like, "Well, I could get groceries, or I could just <laughs> live off this ramen I have and get one of these sick posters."
2: Yep, I was people like,
0: should go. People should go listen to a life well wasted by Robert Ashley if you haven't. At least uh, listen to the one
2: about the pinball designer. Holy shit! Yo, that shit. one's so
0: good. Listen to the one about labor. Um, listen, there's a lot in there, there's a the yeah. the name of my um the name of my old website Clockwork Worlds comes from a quote inside of one of those episodes. Frank Lance is making the case that single player video games are going the way of of the of the dodo, I guess that's a thing that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and that and that one day, all of these clockwork worlds will be replaced by multiplayer games. I'm sure Frank has walked that back since then, because it's a fun thought experiment more than like, like an argument. Uh, but that is that is a life well wasted. It's fantastic podcast.
2: Go listen to it. All right, uh, and that was us talking about more perfect of uh, season three. And this has been Waypoints. Our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you? Not reading the Federalist <laughs> over at
1: Patrick Klupik.
2: Austin. Awesome. At Austin underscore Walker. All right and that will do it for this week's waypoints we hope you've enjoyed the break we'll be back again with waypoint radio later this week we hope you join us again but until then hamilton wrote the other 51 i hate this i hate this i'm so mad
0: <laughs> do not be astonished do not give in to astonishment whatever it is he fucking says <laughs>
1: well who knows what he there's said a there's a comma who